yeah, so the idea of security is a very human issue. One way or another, we're gonna want to feel secure about our circumstances, our lives, everything. And yeah, it would really be great to have that place of security. Welcome to Dose of Truth, a place where we talk about life, glorify God, and enjoy Him forever. And right now, I want to talk about a question that's been kind of controversial. Like, over the years, there have been many ways on how people answer this question, and it's a question which revolves around the idea that when a person is saved, can that person ever lose his salvation? Can that person ever fall from the love of God when he's already in the love of God? Over the years, some people have said, yeah, you can lose your salvation if you fail to persevere. On the flip side, some people have said, no, you can't. Once you're saved, you're always saved. It's sealed forever. But what does the Bible say about that? I mean, I don't know, based on how I studied the scriptures, I mean, yeah, sure, if it's according to your efforts, then of course, you're you're capable of losing it. You can lose your salvation if it's based on if it's based solely on your efforts. But one of the things Scripture teaches about the love of God, one of the basic principles that Scripture reveals about the love of God is that nothing can separate you from the love of God, and yes, not even yourself. Because the love of God is also hinged on His sovereign attribute. Um, Just as He's a sovereign God, His love is also a sovereign love. And the idea of sovereignty... um. Once you're sovereign over something, the factors which play along on that something, in a sense, is unaffected, is in a sense, doesn't affect the person who's sovereign over that something. Does that make sense? Like, let's say God's sovereign over everything, your circumstances, your sin struggles, everything about your life. Then, in a sense, you can say that God is unaffected by your sin struggles, your circumstances, and everything in your life. Which means that whatever is going on in you and whatever is going on in your circumstances doesn't affect God's affections towards you. And that's pretty much of good comfort if you think about it. So this truth that nothing separates us from the love of God already deals with two big lies that can attack the Christian faith. One of these lies goes along the lines of, I am so terrible that God could never love me. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's truth in that statement. We really are terrible people because, well, with respect to God's law, of course. But that's something we have to establish in our walk with Christ. We're really not as good as we think we are. We're so unaware of our sinful nature that it's very inevitable that even in the path of obedience, we're still gonna surprise ourselves with things we thought we're not capable of doing. And then, I don't know, I mean, have you guys found yourself saying stuff like, oh man, I didn't think I'd be capable of something like that. I didn't think I'd be capable of something so horrible. Yeah, because most of the time, that's exactly what makes us feel like we shouldn't have a relationship with God in the first place. But then it begs the question, 
if it's as if we're no longer loved by God because of the atrocities we're capable of, then on what basis do you think does God love us then? Christianity is all about a call to remembrance, to always consider the basis of God's love towards us, which is his character. He loves you just because he loves you, period. And yeah, remember that God knows you more than you could ever know yourself. If you could see your sinful nature with with God's eyes, you'd be surprised to know that you're actually worse than you think you are in terms of being a good and moral person. And that moment of realization, right? I mean, that's exactly when when the enemy comes to, well, for lack of a better term, help you, right? In beating yourself up, accusing you of the things you've done, making you feel worse than you already do, telling you how bad the thing you did was. But how does Paul respond to that? Romans 8.33, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 30, verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. God already factored in every single sin you are ever to commit, past, present, and future, and factored all of this in even before time began. Yet he still loved you, foreknew you, and forgave you. Because that's the thing, there's not one thing you can do to undo your justification and there's nothing you can do to bring you back to condemnation. And that in itself is reason for us to not beat ourselves up when we commit error for the one who has every right to charge us doesn't charge anything against us. I mean, if you find yourself doing something wrong and you feel bad about it and you feel convicted of it, that in itself is actually a sign that God hasn't given up on you. The fact that you feel convicted means the Spirit is convicting you, and the best response there is to just repent, turn around, come back. not going to treat you as your sin deserves. He's not going to accuse you of anything. If anything, the office of accusation belongs to another person. Like, if you consider what the word Satan means, Satan pretty much means or literally means accuser. It's Satan's office to accuse. And note this, Satan's accusations against you are actually valid. Um, It's based on your sinful nature. It's based on our sinful nature. They're not false. They're not entirely false. Well, some are slandered, but some are not false. But the thing about justification is that if you're really justified in Christ, there's not an accusation that can stand for eternity. And that's exactly the basic theme of that's the basic theme of what Romans 8 is all about. Romans 8 opens with no condemnation and closes with no separation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and there's no separation between us and God's love. That's good news for us. And why and how is that so? Because God's our chief defense counsel in in light of trial when the enemy accuses of something. He intercedes for us as our high priest and he is for us when we're put under this trial. Another lie that we tend to succumb to whenever we're put under pressure is, yeah, my life sucks so much. God probably doesn't love me anymore. He's probably punishing me for something. 
But let's refute that here in here right now, this early. Um, terrible circumstance is never an indicator that God hates you. And an abundance of blessing is never an indicator that God loves you. Sometimes it's even the reverse. And this is already a direct attack, rebuke, and refutation on the prosperity gospel theology. Um, that's, that theology has caused more harm than it has caused comfort, honestly. It teaches that a Christian with a healthy kind of faith will have nothing but good things, such as health and wealth. That's nonsense. That's so unbiblical. Some Somebody way better than you, way better than me, went through a whole lot more trouble in life than we ever could. In his ministry, even up to death. You guys might know him, his name is Jesus Christ. More than that, he even promised that trials will be present on this world. So what makes us think that troubles will not strike us? It will. But if anything, those trials, those areas of hardships are actually avenues for us to become more than conquer more than conquerors in Christ because it's through those trials wherein we experience victory after victory, going from glory to glory by the aid of him who loves us. Hear this preaching by John Piper where he said that we're more than conquerors in Christ because a conqueror sees his enemies dead at his feet. But in our case, we're more than conquerors because the enemies in life that we have, like the things Paul mentioned, for example, pestilence, trouble, famine, nakedness, persecution, tribulation, distress, and all that, all those things, even the bad things we experience, serve us. Our enemies serve us, quote-unquote. God uses them to serve us so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ, so we can experience joy in Him, so we can be content in Him, so we can be dependent on Him, and so we can look to Him. And that brings us good comfort because that puts a purpose to everything we go through, even the bad things. Meaning, through everything that's happening, God's love is present and God is always, always, always going to be in control. So yeah, just to quote Tim Keller, whether the bad things happen in you or outside you, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Which means that no mistake we can ever make can ever forfeit for us the, the affections that God has since he's already factored those in. No terrible circumstance is ever a mark of our separation from God since it's his sovereign hand which permits or even ordains them to happen for a greater purpose. At the same time, there's no sin too deep for his love to dispel and forgive on the account of the gospel. And that's so comforting if you think about it. If anything, God's sovereign love factors in the entire narrative of our salvation. Because of our justification, no charge made against us will ever stand permanently because Christ intercedes for us. He's the reason why we're forgiven. He's the reason why we're legally justified in the first place. Because of our sanctification, everything that happens in our lives is ultimately for our good, even the bad stuff. 
Thus, the motivation for God permitting this and that to happen, even the bad stuff to happen, is actually His love. And lastly, our glorification, because of our glorification, after everything is said and done, there will always only be one end goal for the believer who genuinely loves Christ, which is eternal fellowship and love with Him forever. If anything, I mean, if there's someone who God justifies who doesn't make it to heaven, God actually loses more than you do. God actually loses more than that person does. Why? Because he loses the very integrity of his sovereignty, the very, the very integrity of his perfect love. He also loses the integrity of his promise. Um, there was this promise in the Bible which says that nothing can pluck us out of the Son's hand, just as nothing can pluck Jesus out of the Father's hand. So the entire Trinity is actually very active in keeping us in God's arms. We're so secure because not only does the Son hold us, not only does the Father hold us, but the Spirit is in us so that we can be pointed back to God whenever we feel like we want to depart. So yeah, by no means will God contradict himself. Um, if anything, God's name is also on the line because he bound, there's a binding between the promise and the promise giver. Such as, when the promise giver breaks a promise, he kind of taints his name as someone who's untrustworthy. And I think God's name is of more value to him than our actions in life, whether we want to take God seriously or not. So yeah, you might be thinking, well, gee, maybe trouble and sin can separate me from the love of God, but I can separate myself from the love of God. <laughs> no. Remember what Romans 8 says, nothing in creation can ever separate you from the love of God. And aren't you part of creation? Last time we checked, you were. The I mean, yeah, there are times when the believer radically falls from the grace of God. But that's the thing, the believer can radically and greatly fall from God's grace, but never totally. Take Peter, for example, he backslid after denying Christ. He went back to the life which Christ took him out of, which was going back fishing and all that stuff. Look at Samson. The only time he took God seriously was literally moments before he died. Look at the prodigal son. The, f the father pretty much permitted him to waste his inheritance, inheritance, go out and do his own stuff, even though it cost him. But the compassion the father had for the prodigal son when he, com when he, when he came back the Greek term for compassion there was plagisnisomai, which is a deep kind of compassion. There are two instances I know of at least where this, where this word was used. The other one was in John chapter 11 when Jesus wept. And the very premise of that, of that word, plagisnisomai, is the idea that the compassion in God was so strong that it act, that Jesus actually felt it in his gut. You ever had that feeling before when the grief just manifests physically, whether you get tired, whether you, so, you know, that literal feeling in your gut that kicks in when grief kicks in? Yeah, Jesus felt that out of compassion. 
Same thing the father in the prodigal son felt out of compassion. Why? Because God wants to God wants you to come to him more than you could ever want to come to him. That's the reality of it. That's the beauty of it. And yeah, uh, adding to that, the son pretty much knew that he didn't deserve the father's love anymore, and that's something he acknowledged. And it's kind of pre- it's kind of reasonable given the offense that he committed. But what's more surprising than that was not only did the father show compassion towards him, but check this out—he actually ran towards the penitent boy. I mean, every time the Bible depicts God's movements, it's always so gentle it's always so yeah gentle he walked on water he walked with enoch he walked with adam it was always him walking it was always him so gentle and serene but the only time that the bible kind of describes god's movement as someone who was running was when yeah he's running after his children And that's the thing, how precious the soul must be for a God to run after it like that. Because, yeah, there are going to be times wherein God's going to allow you to find happiness apart from Him. There will be times when God's going to allow you to follow your own will apart from His will. But only to make you realize that following your own will was never worth it to begin with. And the fullness of satisfaction can only be found in him alone. So yeah, can the believer find his way deviating from God's way? Absolutely. But the believer will by no means be plucked out of the Father's hand. He will always find his way back to the Father. The believer might lose something, in the prodigal's, in the prodigal son's case, his inheritance. But... The believer will always find his way back to the Father's embrace. And that's our eternal security in Christ. So yeah, but for the reality of God's sovereignty to kick in, we ought to internalize the very theology of what his love really means in the first place. And what better way to internalize God's love than to go back to the cross, to go back to the gospel narrative? Why? Because question what hung jesus on that cross was it the nails was it the persecution was it pilate more than the nails more than the persecution more than pilate's decree what hung what hung what kept jesus hanging on that cross was actually his love for us because according to tim keller he could have backed out at any time after all he is god all he had to do was give up on us and decide that he's had enough Yet, he stayed. And that's how you know that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. Because the rejection and anger from God, from God which we feel like we deserve because of our sin, was poured out on Jesus on our behalf. He was treated like the condemned so we can be declared justified, so we can be declared innocent. He was seen as someone who was ungodly so that... The, so that God can make the ungodly godly. In the short hours that Jesus was on the cross, he experienced an eternity's worth of separation so that we can experience an eternity's worth of fellowship with God. Moreover, um, just quoting Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, it's a good book, you might want to check it out. 
we can reconcile the sufferings we have in this world with the cross. We might not know what the reason for them is, but we will discover what the reason is not. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he let go of us. Because he takes the condition of human suffering so seriously that he took it head on in his ministry, even up to death. So we can take solace in the idea that God, that our God through Christ knew what it was like to suffer. And that's exactly why he can wipe our tears away. Like, he's actually the most legitimate person you can ever have to ever tell you, I've been there too. I felt that too. So yeah, we can have comfort that just as God produced something good out of Christ's suffering, which is, well, our salvation, somehow, some way, he will produce something good in the sufferings of his children. He will by no means deny you anything you need to traverse this world and to get you to draw near to him. And more than that, I mean, your best friends, your closest, your closest relatives, like the people around you will eventually leave you, either because of death, busyness, separation, conflict, anything that can physically separate you guys or emotionally separate you guys. But you can be certain that none of those things can separate you from the love of God. And that's something we can be sure of, ultimately. Mm-hmm.